Philippians chapter 1. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Colossians chapter 1. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do my, sh- I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions, which simply means the church has been allotted a certain amount of suffering, not to complete Christ's atonement, that is full, but a certain amount of suffering for the maturing of the completion of the body, the church of Jesus Christ. Revelation chapter 6. When the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And there was given to each of them a white robe. And they were told that they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers who were to be killed, even as they had been, would be completed also. A certain amount of suffering has been granted. A a certain number of brothers and sisters to be killed is determined. And so there is a group of souls, dare I call them a family of martyrs, right under the altar, close to the throne, slain as followers of Jesus as that number grows toward completion. 1955, Edward Steichen, the director of photography at the Museum of Modern Art in New York completed an exhibition begun three years earlier called The Family of Man. It was was an ambitious project beginning with over two million pictures submitted from around the world, narrowed to 503 photographs, 273 artists from 68 countries of the world. The exhibit intended to tell a story, to display a family album showing how from birth to death people are basically the same the world over. Same emotions, same relationships, same lives, and same end. Cast after World War II and the beginning of the Cold War when people were rightly concerned about nuclear holocaust, it was intended to demonstrate hope through humanity's family oneness. Notice, hope from within. Family of Man was hailed an incredible achievement, the greatest photographic exhibition of all time. It was on display from January to May of that year before it went on a 37-country tour lasting eight years. Millions traveled to see it. One reviewer suggested that the attraction was, as people viewed the photographs, they saw their own faces staring back at them. The title of the exhibit comes from a poem written by Carl Sandburg, which reads, There is only one man in the world, and his name is all men. There is only one woman in the world, and her name is all women. There is only one child in the world, and the child's name is all children. 
the family of man. And while there may be some truth to the poem and to that exhibit, they both miss something of eternal significance. The souls under the altar. You see, not everyone shares the same fate, the same end. There is a sense in which we are not all the same. You see, those who name the name of Christ potentially, even regularly, face opposition, persecution, and even martyrdom. And so the International Day of Prayer tried to highlight the difference in a video they produced uh, over 20 years ago, playing off Steichen's uh, massive exhibit. The, The video is no longer available, I suppose removed by copyright concerns, but but in it, they suggested the the family of man does indeed have an album. In that album are pictures of people cut from the pages of human history, men and women, boys and girls, black, white, brown and red, young and old, rich and poor. The album, you see, is not selective. The album, perhaps better called the family of God, contains the images of people whose lives have been taken for the testimony of Jesus Christ, souls under the altar. I would suggest the cover of that family album is engraved with a cross. And the preface has a painting of a dungeon, a specific dungeon, a dark, cold, deep, dank, foul. This dungeon was located beneath a magnificent palace at Machaerus, located seven miles east of the north end of the Dead Sea. Archaeological excavations reveal walls where prisoners were chained. Most never saw the light of day. Most did not make it out alive. They died alone and forgotten. The most Famous of all prisoners chained to those walls was the forerunner of the Christ and his cross. We've been talking about him. He's the last of the Old Testament prophets. His job was to announce the coming of the Messiah, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. His message was always the same. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. By the way, it was also the message of Jesus it, it did not matter whether the hearer was among the Jewish ruling party or the religious elite. It did not matter whether the hearer was a soldier carrying out Roman law or a puppet king carrying out Roman order. The message was the same. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Dressed in simple camel hair for reasons only attributable to the work of the Holy Spirit, his message was somehow effective. Droves of people travel to the wilderness of the Jordan River to hear him preach and be baptized by him. Baptism of repentance, like the millions, I suppose, who traveled to see their faces in a mirror. This prophet even had the audacity to name the sin which needed repentance. Crowds, you brood of vipers, turn from your hypocrisy, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. If you have more than you need, give it to those who do not. Stop hoarding. Tax collectors do not cheat the people. Do not collect 
collect more than you have been ordered. Soldiers, stop extorting the people. Do not take money by force. Do not accuse anyone falsely. Political leader, king, tetrarch, you're living in adultery. It is not lawful for you to have the woman that you have. It was that last one that resulted in confinement to that famed wilderness dungeon. It was that last one that, caught the pro- that cost the prophet his life. His picture was taken and placed in the preface of the album. Family of man, better the family of God. And I suspect there are some days that he leads the worship at the foot of the cross excuse me, at the foot of the throne of God under the altar and pleads for God to avenge his blood. After all, he was eventually beheaded. You see, the family of God has an album. The cover is engraved with a cross. The preface is a painting of a dungeon and its most famous prisoner, John the Baptist. We read a summary of the story attached to that picture in Luke chapter 3, and it is most appropriate, you see. This month, like November every year, is a month in which we, the church, remember our brothers and sisters uh, around the world persecuted for their testimony of Jesus Christ, maintained in the midst of the most adverse circumstances, persecution, and yes, martyrdom. And so that family album continues to grow. Pages are added every year, every month, every week, every day with new pictures and new faces. It is to be expected. Jesus said that it would happen. You will share the truth of the gospel and you will be opposed. The sons and daughters of the kingdom are forced to live alongside the sons and daughters of the evil one. There is a cost to being a follower of Jesus Christ. And if we are not careful, we briefly skim the verses of our text and hardly pause like we pause once a year to pray for today's persecuted and then return to our wonderful lives. Who wants to be disturbed by such depressing news? And yet here they are. And so read the brief story in the preface to the album with me, Luke chapter 3, verses 18 to 20. So with many other exhortations, he, John, preached the gospel to the people. But when Herod the Tetrarch was reprimanded by him because of Herodias, his brother's wife, and because of all the wicked things which Herod had done, Herod, was added, Herod also added this to them all. He locked John up in prison. This greatest of all those born of women. There's a sense in which the family of God, the album, which contains the pictures of those whose souls are now under the altar, begins with this picture. Certainly there are many other Old Testament saints as well. But there was something unique about this one. No outline today. I'm simply going to tell the story, the story of the martyrdom of John the Baptist, the forerunner to the Messiah, the preface to the album. 
While Luke summarizes it, I will draw on some other gospel narratives to fill in some much-needed detail. But, but, but know this, Luke, listen, Luke gives only the scantiest of facts because for him the sun sets on John while it now shines brightly, most brightly from here on out on Christ, which ends with a cross. You see, this is the way of the Christian life. There's a sense in which John's job is finished. In fact, next week we'll see the baptism of Jesus, but Luke does not even mention the baptizer. Uh, To be sure, John does not die this early in the narrative, and Luke will mention yet another story concerning John in chapter 7, you know, after John has been arrested, imprisoned, and facing imminent death. But again, this story serves as the last chapter of the life of the prophet as the light begins to shine on Jesus. John's ministry lasted all of six months, maybe a year. His imprisonment, according to Josephus, lasted two years in that dark dungeon. As we tell the story, I want you to remember... It is the first of many such stories which could be told across the pages of time to the present day. It's a very full album. Hundreds of thousands, if not millions of pictures. While the source is early church tradition, it is said that 11 of the 12 apostles died as martyrs. Early stories exist as to their martyrdom to include Peter who was crucified upside down as he did not count himself worthy to be crucified in the same manner as his Lord. His brother Andrew was also crucified. James, whose only apostolic death appears in Scripture, was killed by Herod Agrippa, run through with a sword. Philip was stoned. Matthew was burned at the stake. Thomas was run through with a spear. Credible stories exist concerning the others. Stephen, one of the first deacons, stoned the Apostle Paul, was beheaded. Most of the earliest, uh, or excuse me, many of the earliest Christians and church fathers died for the testimony of Jesus, Ignatius, Polycarp, and John Chrysostom. It, it, it is said of Polycarp, the bishop of Smyrna, as he was facing immediate, eminent Martyrdom in the stadium at Smyrna, he was given by the proconsul opportunity to recant. His response, 80 and six years, have I served him and he has never done me wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who has saved me? When the irritated proconsul threatened to burn him alive, he said, you threaten me with fire which burns for an hour and after a little while is extinguished. But you are ignorant of the fire of the coming judgment, of eternal judgment reserved for the ungodly. Why do you tarry? Bring forth what you will. And his picture was added to the album. Unfortunately, in later years, some experiencing martyrdom for their faith faced it at the hands of of the church. Men like Johann or John Huss who 100 years before that Protestant Reformation was teaching biblical truth and was thereby opposed by the church, promised safe passage to the Council of Constance in 1415. Upon arrival, he was summarily arrested and eventually, well, burned at the stake. As the flames burned, Huss, whose name means goose, 
said, you may cook the goose, but 100 years from now, a swan will arise whom you will not be able to burn nor boil, whom you won't be able to extinguish. And 102 years later, Martin Luther, whose family crest was a swan, rose to post the 95 Theses on the church door at Wittenberg, next door to Huss's home country of Bohemia, present-day Czech Republic, and a few hundred miles from Constance, the place of his death. We could speak further of men like Hugh Latimer or Nicholas Ridley, who were also burned at the stake under the reign of Bloody Mary. We could speak of the hundreds of Huguenots killed in St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre. We could speak of today's martyrs, more in the 20th century than the 19th centuries, previous 19th centuries combined. The, the truth is, pages are being added to the album every day, and there is a sense in which John was the first. Of course, in the long line of God's people who came before and paid the ultimate price because the world always opposes God's people. You see, Jesus promised suffering for his followers, said, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. Can I say to you, do not listen to the false teachers out there with their pernicious and ungodly, unbiblical teaching, which says God wants you to be healthy, wealthy, and prosperous. Their names will not be found in the family album, nor perhaps will they be found in the book of life, as they have perverted the gospel. We should begin by meeting the characters in this particular story. John, we know, but there are three others. By the way, this story is more sordid than any soap opera you've ever heard. It is a story of infidelity, divorce, remarriage, incest, political intrigue, jealousy, spite, revenge, lewdness, lust, cold-heartedness, cruelty, brutality, and violence. There you go. First character is Herod, whom Luke called the Tetrarch. We met him earlier in chapter 3, one of three of Herod the Great's descendants among whom the kingdom was divided. We first meet Herod the Great in Matthew chapter 2. He was the first of the Herods, ruled Israel under the authority of Rome, came to power around 40 B.C. and ruled until his death in 4 B.C., he was given the title King of the Jews by the Roman Senate, though he, was, he himself was not a Jew, rather he was an Idumean, that is an Edomite, the avowed enemies, to the, uh, of, of the Jews southeast of Israel, not unlike today's southwest of Israel. Although he was an able administrator, politically gifted, an incredible builder, he was a harsh ruler. He loved his power and levied incredibly heavy taxes on the people because he also loved his wealth. And besides all that, he wasn't a nice guy. You may remember he became paranoid near his death. Right before he died, he had, a, uh, uh, he had a, uh, uh, his wife and two of his sons executed as well as several of his close associates. He also left instructions for hundreds of Jewish leaders to be killed um, when he died, to ensure that there would be some mourning at his death. 
He was also the one who had all the male babies under the age of two murdered in Bethlehem, trying to kill the Messiah, the rightful king of the Jews. Herod the Great died. His kingdom was divided between three of his sons. Herod Philip II, who was tetrarch of Iturea, Trachonitis, and uh, to the north, and Archelaus, who was the governor of Judea, Idumea, and Samaria to the south, and Herod Antipas, who was tetrarch of Galilee and Perea, right there in the middle. This third Herod Antipas is the Herod we're talking about today, the antagonist of the story. By, by this time, he was in the 32nd year of his reign. Now, tetrarch literally meant a fourth ruler, but, but it had come by this time to mean any kind of two-bit ruler. You see, Herod the Great was actually the last king. Technically, Herod Antipas wasn't really a king. He just liked being called such. This, by the way, is also the Herod to whom Pilate, was, uh, to whom Pilate sent Jesus uh, during his trial, right before his crucifixion. Now, Herod Antipas lived primarily in Tiberias, uh, a city he had built and named after the current emperor on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee. It's interesting to note that Jesus, in all of his ministry, it's never mentioned that he ever visited Tiberias, even though it was within walking distance of Capernaum. He did miracles all around Tiberias, but seemed to steer clear uh, of Herod, whom he once called a fox. In addition to Tiberias, Herod also had a palace in Machairus, that place seven miles east of the northern end of the Dead Sea. It was kind of a summer palace for him, and Josephus tells us it was there that the events of this story take place. Underneath that opulent palace, deep down in the ground, was that dungeon. It was there that John the Baptist was kept for up to two years. The second person that we meet is a real gem. Her name is Herodias. Try to keep up with this. It gets really confusing and, frankly, a bit disgusting. Herod the Great actually had more than three sons. After all, he had ten wives. In addition to these three who ruled, he had Aristobulus, Antipater, and Herod Philip I. Actually, most of these guys were half-brothers since Herod the Great had those ten wives. Now, Aristobulus had a daughter named Herodias. She married her uncle, Herod Philip I. Way too many Herods running around, but married her uncle, Herod Philip I. Together they had a daughter named Salome, the third character we'll meet in just a moment. So Herodias marries her uncle Philip. But one day, while she was visiting her uncle Herod Antipas, he seduced her. They agreed to get divorced from their respective spouses and marry each other. Third character, of course, is the daughter of Herodias from her first marriage named Salome. At this time, get this, she is probably only 12 or 14 years of age. You might be interested to know that she grows up to marry her great-uncle, Herod Philip II, the Tetrarch, making her, are you ready, both the aunt and sister-in-law to her own mother. It all gets a bit confusing. This is one sick family. John thought so, too which is why he denounced Herod Antipas's marriage to his brother's wife, Herodias. Talk about that more in a moment. You get the background. Herodias divorced one uncle to marry another. No biblical grounds for divorce and remarriage. No biblical grounds for marriage. Just lust and disgust. And so, rightly, John condemns their marriage as 
and condemns it as unlawful. It was against the law of Moses. The language in the Greek in Matthew is such that he condemned it, spoke out against it over and over. It was one of his favorite topics. All this began the chain of events which led to his death. Because of his denunciation of their illicit relationship, John was arrested, bound, and in prison. Now, at first, Herod wanted to put him to death. He was infuriated by John's confrontation. But one thing that we will find about Herod is that he is a fearful man. He was afraid of everyone. And it's something you should remember. And we're going to find Herod actually becomes interested in John. He actually enjoys talking to him and used to spend time with him when he was in the summer palace. But his fear of everyone and everything kept him from committing to John's message. His fear kept him from repenting. What would the people think? He was afraid of everyone. First, he seemed to be afraid of his wife, Herodias. Again, in Matthew, we find he arrests John because of Herodias. She seemed to be the one who, to put him up to it. She nursed a grudge. She seed with bitterness and hostility. She wanted him dead. But there's a problem. Herod II was also afraid of the people. He could not put John to death, afraid of, of how the people might respond since the people viewed him as a prophet. Third, in the parallel passage in Mark 6, we read that he was afraid to put John to death because he had come to see John as a righteous and holy man. In his frequent visits with John, he was beginning to understand that there was something about this man and his message. He was afraid to put him to death because he was beginning to understand that John might just be a man of God. Fourth, Josephus records that one of his motivations for putting John to death was politically motivated. He was afraid of John's influence and how John might undermine his power. After all, if the people listened to him, it might have an effect on his next political campaign. And lastly, we see that, he was, that when he finally does put John to death, it's not because he really wants to. He's that he's made an oath and he's scared of what the dinner guests might say if he doesn't keep it. The whole thing, no, just a, a fearful mess. Yeah, this is what happened. John is in prison. Herod has been visiting him because he enjoyed listening to him. Apparently, there's some degree of receptivity in Herod's part. But horrible sinner he was. It came a day... Mark calls it a strategic day when all that would end. It was Herod's birthday, and he invited a bunch of lords and military commanders and leading men of Galilee all over for a birthday bash. Now, you should know something about this party. Jews did not celebrate birthdays back then because these birthday parties flowed from pagan culture. They were vile. They were drunken. They were sensual, sexual parties. In fact, Herod's was nothing but a drunken stag party. The, the men would eat and drink themselves into oblivion, and then they would bring out the women. The dancing at these parties was sensual, vulgar, and lustful. It was a foul party. In this particular case, one of the women to dance was really just a girl, young lady, Herod's young Stepdaughter. She pleased him most, she pleased all of them, most notably proud stepfather Antipas. Get the picture, stuffed to the gill, drunk out of his mind, enjoying lewd dancers, one of whom uh, was his step 
daughter, this blithering idiot tipped the dancer too much. He's so pleased, he promised her whatever she wanted, up to half of his kingdom, as if this two-bit ruler had actually had a kingdom. Salome was only a young girl. She didn't know what to ask for, so she went and asked her mother. And this was the moment that Herodias had been waiting for. All of her rage, pent-up rage and anger and bitterness spilled out. Ask him for the head of John the Baptist. The language in parallel passages is such that there was an urgency to the request. I want his head right now. Make no delay. And because of the oath he had taken, as if he had a sudden attack of integrity, Herod gave the order. It's John the Baptist. A cold, dark dungeon for no apparent reason. The executioner made his way to John's cell. He was murdered. And his head taken to the girl on a platter who in turn took it to her mother. Do you see that? Jerome, who was a contemporary of the Apostle John, one of the twelve, tells us that when the head was brought to Herodias on the platter, she spat on it and pierced his tongue with a hairpin. For her, you see, it was a sign of victory. The tongue that had condemned her sinful behavior, she pierced. She gained the ultimate victory over this man, or did she? You see, history further records that when Herod Philip II, the Tetrarch, died, Herodias encouraged her husband, Herod Antipas, to ask Emperor, now Caligula, for his brother's territory. However, word had gotten um, to the emperor that Herod was planning an insurrection, so not only did Herod not receive his brother's tetrarchy, his was taken from him. He was banished, sent into exile uh, to France, and worst of all, he was forced to take his wife with him. But that's actually not the worst that happened to Herod. The body they may kill. They killed John the Baptist. Jesus said, don't fear him who has power over the body. Fear him rather who has power over the body and soul. And so Herod came to the end of his life and because of his fear of man and fear of woman and because he had the opportunity to hear John uh, about Jesus, he heard all that but he never repented. And all that awaits him now is certain fearful Judgment. So that's the story. Family of God has an album. Cover is engraved with a cross. The preface is a painting of a dungeon and its most famous occupant. And new pages are being added to the album every day. It grows. More pictures taken, more faces displayed. And believers the world over are filling up that which is lacking in the afflictions of Christ and joining the throng under the altar. Family of God has an album. 
am suggesting that it sits on his coffee table. And he knows every tattered picture because they are written on his heart. How long? Until the number of their brothers and sisters who are to be killed is completed. Then the day will come when the blood of the martyrs will be avenged. All will be made right. That day is indeed coming. Until then, we sow the seed of the gospel, understanding the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Let's stand for prayer. Two very quick verses in Luke's gospel that we just can skim right over. And Jesus said of this man, among those born of women, no one greater than John the Baptist. He, he fulfilled his, his work. The reason that, that you called him. And it cost him his life. And you have similarly called us to share the hope of Christ. In the face of great adversity, opposition, persecution. And so we do pray for brothers and sisters around the world who face such circumstances, recognizing that as they do, they are filling up that which is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. And as they die for the cause of Christ, the pictures are added to the book. Their souls are under the altar, right next to the throne of God. Father, we are overwhelmed by the story. Use it to strengthen us and to embolden us for the gospel. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.